So 1 John in chapter 2 this morning, and we're going to do kind of more of a topical message, um, but, but basically we're going to look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 through 11. So we've already talked about the different reasons that John wrote uh, 1 John. He wrote them, my clicker's not working, that's not why he wrote it, but um, he wrote these things, he says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, these things we write to you so that your joy may be full. So that's one of the main reasons he wrote 1 John. Uh, second reason we find in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Now, I love this because many people read that verse and they go, uh, wait a minute, we all know that we still sin because uh, we're not perfected yet. And so what's the deal? He's writing this so that we can actually have the ability to not sin at all. And there's entire denominations that claim that once you start to follow Christ, then you are incapable of sinning. And what I want to point out is that I looked for another translation that said something else to contradict what everybody kind of takes from this. He's not saying that, that once you follow Christ that you are incapable of sinning. He's saying, I'm writing these things to you to equip you so that you will not be caught up in sin, a lifestyle of sin. Jesus said, whom the Son of Man sets free is free indeed. So if that's the case, either it's true that we have the power by the Spirit of God to be set free from the power of sin, or Jesus is a liar and we shouldn't be following him. So which is it? Well, I submit to you that through the Word of God instructing us and His Holy Spirit empowering us, we have actually been given the power of heaven to be able to say no to sin. A lifestyle of sin. Uh, and so the reality is, I looked up, now there was one version of the Bible, and many of you may not like it, but it's called The Message. And I like how it said this. His translation, Eugene Peterson, was this. I write this, dear children, to guide you out of sin. He's setting us free. Jesus is setting us free, but he's a good shepherd. He leads us away from things that are a danger to us. And so while we still have the propensity to sin because our own wicked hearts still have desires when we've not given them to the Lord, the reality is God wants us to guide us, wants to guide us away from sin and the temptation to sin. And I love this because if we pursue living righteously, you won't have time to sin. If you'll go towards the things that God is calling you to, you'll be so busy trying to do the will of the Father that there won't be a whole lot of free time for sin. At least that's my experience. But in James chapter 1, verse 13, the half-brother of Jesus writes this. And really, I'm going to read verse 12 through 15. He says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But look at this. Each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when sin, excuse me, then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. So the reality is, is that temptation will come, but the, the question is whether or not temptation or the opportunity to sin meets a desire that's in my heart, which is essentially like fuel to the fire. We are exposed to fire as believers. So when he says we are approved, uh, the reality is approved means the heat's been turned up and whatever's in us boils to the surface. So if we are tempted, the, the heat's turned up, but if there's no kindling, there can't be any fire. Look at the kindling like your desires. Get rid of the dry kindling. We used to, every year as we lived in the woods, when this time of year came around, the dog days, Indian summer, we would rake all the leaves away from our house in the case that some neighbor miles away would have a fire and try to burn some leaves and the ashes would go into the woods and start a forest fire and they would come to our house that was in the woods 
that there will be no kindling around the foundation of our home. And so the reality is, our duty as Christians is to say, Lord, what are the things in my life that are desires that are not yours? Please remove them so that when the fire comes near me, and it will, there will be no kindling to set aflame desires that lead to sin. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I love this because the Bible teaches that uh, God doesn't tempt us, and yet God does allow things in our lives that might tempt us. He doesn't tempt us, Satan does, but the reality is um, God, at the very least, allows those things into our lives. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in verse 13, it says this, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. So all the things that you are tempted by, everybody is in some form or fashion. Even Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. But then he goes on to say, But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. So when God does allow temptation, he also instructs you and prepares you with a way to escape from that temptation. And the reality is many times we're afraid to flee it. You know, think about Joseph in the book of Exodus. Uh, Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife, or no, at the end of Genesis And when he was tempted, she kept, as a young man, he had an older woman approaching him and saying, lay with me, my husband will never know. But as a young Hebrew man, he said, I cannot do this sinful thing against my God. He wasn't worried about Potiphar. He wasn't worried about his boss seeing him. He wasn't, you know, but he was worried about what God thought about it. And so, you know what he did? He didn't say, I can't do this bad thing. He said, I'm out, and he ran. So fast did he run that when she took a hold of his garment, it was ripped from him. He didn't look back. I believe that he was tempted, just like any other man would be in that situation. But he fleed temptation because he had a way of escape, and it was his two legs. I think sometimes we're looking for God to show us a sign, and sometimes the sign that we are supposed to run from a situation is the fact that we have two legs that work and a brain that makes them work. And so, um, anyway, all that to say, he goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter, excuse me, 1 John chapter 2. I really struggle with that sometimes. 1 John chapter 2, in verse 1, he says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous. When we talked about that word advocate, you think about the TV show that used to be on, Judge Advocate General, JAG. Uh, maybe some of that was after your time, but you know, he, he was an advocate. He, they had lawyers involved in the show. I was young. I don't remember a whole lot of it, but I remember it had to do with the judicial system. But an advocate is a, a paracleto in the in the Greek, and it means a comforter, uh, someone that stands trial for you, someone that gives an answer to the judge and speaks on your behalf. And, and not only that, but he also, he goes on in, to verse 2, he himself is also the propitiation for our sins. And that propitiation is just a fancy word for the payment that takes away wrath. Instead of having to go through the punishment yourself, Jesus Christ, the righteous, not only your lawyer, but also the, the ransom for your sin. The one who is able to pay the price that you deserve to pay to be forgiven. He stands in our place as our advocate, but also as our, not only as our defense attorney, but also the one who takes the place of our judgment. So he himself is the payment that turns away wrath for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world, whosoever will may come. And so I love this because we've looked at the first two. He wrote that our joy may be full. He wrote that we may not sin. And I think these are tied together. But in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write to you that you may know that you have eternal life. 
assurance that God has saved you. He says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So it's for the furtherance and the growth of our faith. So in chapter 2, verse 3, he goes on to say, Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. And then he goes on to say, by this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. He says, brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light, he's circling around back to this idea that he spoke about in chapter one. He who says he's in the light and yet he walks in darkness. Remember he said that in chapter one, but now he says an example of walking in darkness. He who says he's in the light, verse nine, and hates his brother is in darkness until now. Until now, because the true light is shining. God reveals sin. And to us that already know that we're sinners, when he reveals our sin, there's this still this like, oh, I'm found out. But there's also this, God knows me. And he's continuing to cleanse me. And he's continuing to show me the ways that he wants to grow me. But he who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. And so we can deceive ourselves by thinking that we're walking in the light and yet walking in darkness practically with our lives. And so this is the test of whether or not we know God. And I love this because the idea of knowing God is not just knowing about him, but actually knowing him personally, which is how we have fellowship with him. Now, think about it. You don't have fellowship, true fellowship, with anybody that you don't really know. We, we have become a little bit confused on that because in our day and age, we know a lot of people because we're friends with them on the interwebs or because we know their names because we live in a small town. And unfortunately, because we think we know so many people, when we meet them, they don't have a chance because what we know about them, we either heard third hand or second hand, or we've made assumptions based on what they look like or how they interact with us. But that's not the test of knowing someone. The test of knowing someone is, is if you actually know them, if you, you know them personally, if you've talked to them, if you've allowed them to share with you what they believe and what they like and what they dislike. And, and that's true with our relationship with God. Many of us only have second-hand knowledge of Jesus. We know what our parents told us. We know what it looks like in the life of some Christian celebrity. We know what it's supposed to look like according to some Bible teacher that we listen to. But do you know that God wants you to know him firsthand? And he's actually revealed himself in a way where anyone who wants to can know as much about him and know as much as they want to know about him personally. It's what he's given to us in Jesus. God sent his son to reveal his character to the world through human flesh so we could relate. He wants to know you and he wants to be known by you. And so he says here, the test, he says, by this, we know that we know him. Now, this is important because there was a group called the Gnostics, and they had come along to the Christian church at this time. And the word Gnostic is where we get the word to know. 
But the idea was this group had this deeper knowledge than even the apostles had. They had further revelation about God more than what had been revealed to them through the person of Jesus. And we get these spinoff groups that get these golden plates. We have the Mormons. We have the Jehovah's Witnesses. And though we apparently know a little bit, we don't know everything that they know. So since they have this deeper knowledge, they would come along. Even back in the days that John's writing in 90 AD, they had this group that would split off from the church and they would say, Jesus wasn't really the son of God. He wasn't really a real person. He was a spirit emanation. And um, not only that, but you really don't know him like we do. And so they caused division in the church. So they would come in and say, well, you think you know God, but we have more to tell you. Here's how you can really know God. So John is writing this in response to that, and he goes, look, if a person comes along to you and tells you that they know God, and yet they're causing division in the church, that's not the Holy Spirit leading them. This is actually the Antichrist. We'll find out later in this book. But he says, by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. See, that was something that these false teachers that were coming in the church weren't doing. They claimed to know him with their words, and yet by their lifestyle, they were denying him. And so he says, you'll watch their lives, and they will actually disobey the commandments of God. Stay apart from them. So somebody I wanted to point out, and and maybe you haven't thought about this before, I I was thinking about throughout this week, um, I asked my daughter this question the other day, and maybe Maybe it was, I led her too much. Sometimes you ask a question, you kind of give them the answer in the question. Um, but I asked Lucy this week, I said, when Jesus, in the gospel accounts, approached who became his 12 disciples, what did he ask them to do? And she responded and said, follow me. That was it, right? And what did they do? Was there's this big, long argument, like, I'd like to, but this, and I'd like to, but that. We don't see that, at least in the gospel accounts. We see them laying down what they were doing and following Jesus. And, and it, I like the one account because Jesus approaches Peter, and they've been fishing all night, and Peter has been, that's what he does for a living. He's an expert fisherman. They've been in the Sea of Galilee. It's the first thing in the morning. Jesus approaches. He sees them in the boat, and he says this, hey, Peter, you catching anything? No, we haven't caught a thing all night. He says, throw your net on that side of the boat. Uh, I just said, we've been fishing all night. We haven't caught anything. It's not good fishing weather. You know, and, and he says, but since you asked, what's it going to harm? He throws his net in. And then they gather so many fish that when they go to pull the net into the boat, it almost capsizes. And Jesus' first response is, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Peter knew his humanity. He knew that there was something special about this man, whether it was superstition or whatever. He recognized something very important about Jesus, and he said, don't be around me. I'm sinful. And I love this because you seem to get that same response out of all the the disciples who became the apostles. But there's a, an apostle that comes later on in the, in the text, and it's the apostle Paul. And the apostle Paul can't really relate so much uh, to many of us who have been in church a long time. He could actually, uh, he, we can relate more to the apostle Paul than we can these fishermen that knew that they were sinners. The apostle Paul comes along. He's approached by a Jesus follower. He hears their testimony, and he gets angry. So I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 7. We're going to camp on Paul a little bit this morning. Acts chapter 7, verse 51. This is the address of Stephen. Now, Stephen was the first martyr in the New Testament, the first one to physically die for being a follower of Jesus. And he dies just like Jesus, at the hands of the religious leaders, at their discretion. They saw him as a blasphemer. They didn't like what he had to say, and so uh, they killed him. What every religious person does, right? Um, That's how you show you know God. You kill your brother. But here's what happens. 
Um, Stephen gives this amazing address. He, he talks about the nation of Israel from the very beginning. He talks about the call of Abraham, how God called Abraham. He talks about the patriarchs in Egypt. He talks about how God delivered Israel by Moses from Egypt in the first place. He talks about how Israel always rebelled against God. This nation that had the voice of God speaking to them through the prophets. God reached out to them over and over and over. He was so merciful. He, Moses goes on top of the mountain, comes back down with the Ten Commandments. What are they doing? They're having a party. They're worshiping this golden calf. And there was actually sex play going on. They were worshiping like the world. And then you get down to the very end of his message. He comes to the major point of his message. And this is what it says. Uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. He calls them uncircumcised. That's like, it's like a racial slur against them. He's calling them dirty. He's calling them Gentiles. They were not okay with that. They were mad at him. But he was saying, you're, uncir- you're circumcised in your flesh, but your hearts are not softened to God. And he goes on to say, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so did you. So now he's not only calling them out on their sin, but he's also calling out their whole family. Imagine if I got up here and started calling you guys out for specific sins and then calling out your whole family. There would be riots. There would be picketing. Uh, my house would probably be in trouble. Like It wouldn't go well for me. Maybe not you guys, but other people that have strong roots with their family. You can, any, you can mouth your own family, but I can't, right? I'll punch you in the mouth. That's kind of how we live. Like, I can mouth my family, but you better stay away because I'll fight for them even though I don't really like them. They're my people. Uh, but that's what was going on. He was mouthing them. He was mouthing their families that were already deceased. You don't speak unwell of the deceased. And then he says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? You claim to follow God, but every time he sent a prophet, you guys persecuted him. And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and the murderers, calling Jesus the just one, the Messiah, who have received the law by the direction of angels, but you've not kept it. This is an indictment. This is quite the accusation against Paul against uh, these people, these religious leaders. And it says, when they heard these things, verse 54, they were cut to the heart. Now in Acts, when Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, it says that he gives this big long message and he gives Israel's history. And when he gets done, having said basically the same message, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the crowd, and it says 3,000 were added to the kingdom that day who were saved and became followers of Jesus. It says they were, their, the response to the word of God was they were cut to the heart. The word of God divides the heart. To those that are willing to receive correction, it's the words of life to salvation. But to those who are not being saved by it, who are feeling condemned by it, it is the very stench of death. And that's what it says here. When they heard Stephen's message, they were cut to the heart. Was Stephen wrong? No. He preached the same thing that Peter did. But because the hearts of the people that heard it were not willing to receive correction, it says they gnashed at him with their teeth, And he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing in the right hand of God, and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down. He cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He forgave them while they were murdering him. Sound familiar? Jesus. That's Jesus. And so um, 
It's interesting because as we move on, the story zooms in on one character that the Holy Spirit points out in this chapter. And if you go to Acts chapter 9, afterward, well, sorry, Acts chapter 8 verse 3 says, As Saul, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. So he was trying to stop the message of Jesus. So we find him in chapter 7. He's holding the coats of those who killed Stephen. And he was even consenting to the sentence of death by stoning. He was consenting to murder. If you know God, you'll keep his commandments. What's one of the biggies that we actually remember? Thou shalt not murder. But, but wait a minute. The law also said that if someone came along and claimed to be a prophet and what they said wasn't true, you were supposed to stone them. Well, what he said was true. So Saul's murdering, or at least consenting to, and then he goes on a rampage. It's like blood in the water. He rampages to intimidate Jesus' followers and silence the teachings of what he believed was a false Messiah. He's not circumcised in heart. He's not sensitive to the Spirit and what God had said he was going to do and send the just one. So it seems to me that it's harder for those who think that they are good to get to know God than for those who know they aren't good when they meet Jesus. I don't know about you guys, but for a long time, I was pretty self-righteous. I, I, and I still probably have that in me. But until God cut through my heart and showed me that I wasn't righteous at all without him, I was like Saul here. I was just mad at every Christian for, for judging me. Um, and yet, Saul of Tarsus gets to know God. In Acts chapter 9, it says here, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. He asked letters from him to, to, to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were by the way, which is what they called Christianity, Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They were identifying with him. We are of the way. We're following the way, Jesus. And he, he said, if, if so, that if any found who he found who were by the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, and then he fell to the ground. And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting it's hard for you to kick against the goads. So he trembling, astonished, and said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless. They heard the voice, but they didn't see anybody. So then Saul arose from the ground. When his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. He saw no one. But they led him by the hand, and brought him in Damascus, and he was there three days without sight, and he didn't eat or drink. Have you ever experienced something so traumatic that you weren't hungry? That you weren't there? I wish I could sometimes experience that kind of trauma so I wouldn't eat so much. Uh, you know, but, but the reality is he's so shaken that he's not hungry. He's sick to his stomach. So Saul of Tarsus thought that he knew God, right? So then Jesus introduces himself to Saul of Tarsus. Now, there are three reasons why that are apparent to me. Number one, he introduces himself to Saul of Tarsus because he loves his bride. His bride is the church. Jesus' wife, his bride, his betrothed one, his beloved. We're engaged to Christ. The people that were following Jesus, they had the same relationship that you and I have. And Saul was persecuting. He was messing with the bride of Christ. And Christ takes that personally. So he doesn't come up to him and say, Hey, Saul, you know, I think we need to have a talk. Jesus knocks him down. Just like you or I would if somebody messed with our wife. He knocks down the one messing with his wife. He knocks him to the ground. He says, What are you doing? He calls him by name. So 
Three reasons that are apparent to me that Jesus introduces himself to Paul is number one, to protect his bride. Number two, because he loves his enemies. He loves Saul. Jesus loved the person messing with his wife. So while he knocked him down, he also introduced himself because he loved Saul. Jesus didn't just say, love your enemies. He did it, and he does it. He's, at this time, his enemy, he wants to know Saul, and he wants Saul to know him because he knows that once Saul gets to know him, he won't be a problem anymore. Number three, he loves the whole world. That's why he introduced himself to Saul. So he could send us. So he could send Saul, but so he, then he could send us. We've learned from his letters, right? He sends us to spread the gospel that we have first received. Why did Jesus introduce himself to you? Why did Jesus introduce himself to you? Because apart from Christ, we'll actually be a hindrance to his bride. We'll be hurtful to the bride of Christ if we don't know Christ. Because you, there's no neutral. I'm not really against God. I'm just for myself. Well, then you're at odds with Christ. Scripture teaches in Romans that before Christ, we are actually at war with God. But he loves you. That's also why he introduced himself to you. While we were yet sinning against him, Christ died for the ungodly. And because he loves the whole world, he wants to send us as ambassadors. And so Saul thought he knew God, so God introduced himself to Saul. And then the next slide, uh, Saul of Tarsus gets to know God. So he knocks him down, and he makes him physically blind. Why? I believe he does this to help him see that he's spiritually walking in darkness. If anyone says he's in the light, and yet he walks in darkness, or he hates his brother, he's not in the light. He's only deceiving himself. But now Saul has two choices. He can reject what Jesus says about him, that he's in sin, and he can stay blind, only deceiving himself. Or he can believe, agree with Jesus, and respond in faith, confess his sin, and be restored to walk in actually in the light. And so in Acts chapter 9, verse 6, we see this played out. So Saul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? So he's humbled himself. He's asking for direction. Then the Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground. When his eyes were open, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand, brought him into Damascus, and he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a certain disciple that was already in Damascus. You know, one of the guys who was getting ready to go rip out of his own home named Ananias. And to him, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. Now, this is just a little side note, but do you notice how God addresses each one of these people? He uses their name. He knows each one of us by our names. He also knows the amount of hairs on your head. Now, for some of us, that's easier to keep track than others. But God knows the number of hairs on your head. He knew you in the womb before you were born. He knit you together. But he also knows your name. And that's personal. A lot of people might see you and know you, but they don't know your name. And so anyway, I, I just love that. God knows our names. And that's how he addresses us. And he said, here I am, Lord, so the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias. So in a vision, he's seen you. Coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive sight. Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, 
for he is chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way, entered the house, laying his hands on him, and he said, Brother Saul. Now, Brother Saul. And you guys watch the news. This week, all over the Facebooks and the Twitters and the Instagrams and everything else, there's a video of a man who had his brother shot by a police officer. Now, we all know the culture we live in. Black man shot by a white police officer, a woman. I don't know all the details behind the story, but it was a big mistake. Went into the wrong apartment, was scared, whatever. That all, st- all that stuff's debatable. But the reality is, she saw- shot someone that was innocent. And she's paying a crime for it. She's paying punishment for it. She's not a police officer anymore. She lost her position. She's getting put in prison. Her whole life has changed. Justice has been served, right? But our God is a God of mercy and grace. And the brother of that man sat up on the witness stand, and I guess... I don't know if this is common, but they gave him an opportunity to basically speak his peace. He gets up there. He can say literally anything he wants. Literally. We live in a country where we can say any dumb thing we want, and people do all the time. But he gets up there, and he says, I want you to know that I don't want to anymore speak about the, the pain you've caused us. You're, you're fully aware of that. It happened a year ago, by the way. She's living with this. Now, if you think that you've never done anything wrong, you might be tempted to be like Saul of Tarsus and go, you're getting what you deserve, you dirty Gentile. You, paid, you did the crime, you're going to pay the time. But as a sinner saved by grace, recognizing what I have done, many of you, many, if I listed out what I've actually done, walking in the darkness, you wouldn't want to talk to me. This man gets up on the witness stand, knows what this woman has done against him, against God, against his family, the grief that it's caused them, the nights of sleeplessness, the brother they can't get back. He sits up there and he says, Jesus Christ forgives. And I don't wish any harm on you. I want God's best for you. I want you to take the shame and the guilt, the same shame and guilt that I had to take to Jesus and ask him to forgive me of. Take it to God. He will forgive you just like I am right now. I forgive you. Boy, that is powerful. But if you don't have a heart that's been cut to your conscience and recognize that you're a sinner, you'll never say those words. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe and guess what? All who hear a testimony. If you've jacked up your life and done stupid stuff, you've received forgiveness, you've received freely, go out and give it. Man, the world is needing it so badly. So many caught in sin and shame and hurt that they cannot take off their own back. They need forgiveness. They need grace. They need God's compassion. And so here we have Ananias puts his hand on Saul, the man that was getting ready in a rage to rip him out of his own home, perhaps with his family, perhaps every other believer in Christ was going to get ripped out of their home in that town, knowing the intent of this murderous rage. He lays his hand and he touches him. What I loved about the video is this, mo- this man was moved with so much compassion. He wanted to give the woman a hug. He asks the judge, I don't even know if this is possible, but can I give her a hug? Now, he also said, I wasn't going to say this in front of my family. So I don't know if his family was really on board with this, to forgive that man. Can you imagine? Your son's shot, and his sibling gets up there and says, I forgive you. 
I don't think the family necessarily was in line with that because otherwise he wouldn't have had so much trembling to do it. But then he says, I want to give her a hug. Now you can forgive her, but I'm not touching. No, touch, there's too much to that. To touch your enemy and hug them, embrace them. That's risky. I got skin in the game. But he looks at the judge and says, can I please go give her a hug? And the, the judge is like, I don't even know how to, you know, she hesitates. Now, I find out later that she actually gave her personal Bible to this woman at the end of the deal. Now, he, he then says, please, almost in tears. She hesitates. He says, can I please? He's pleading. I want to hug my enemy. Do any of us want to hug our enemies? Christ does. He hugged you and I. It killed him to hug us. To embrace us meant to take on our sin and let it kill him. You ever hugged a porcupine? No, nobody does that. That's what Christ has done for us. Except the needles have poison in them that not might kill us, will. He's hugged us, a snake. And so Ananias lays his hands on him and says, brother, he identifies with him, made himself equal with him, brother Saul, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with his presence, the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He received his sight at once, and he arose, and he was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened, and he spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. The very people that he was going to persecute became his family, and immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues, and he is the Son of God. He proclaimed him, the man who I was against He's the Son of God. No one forgives like this. No one saves like this. No one heals like this. He's a changed man because of grace. Saul now knows God and chooses to obey the commandments, not to show the world how righteous he is, not to prove himself to the Sanhedrin, not to keep his status. He realizes that God must really love him. Otherwise, he would have snuffed him out without even a second thought. On this side of the cross, Saul now looks back and says, I don't deserve it. So, how do I know that I know God? I, I did all of that to bring you around to how do we know that we know God? The word know means to know by experience, personal, not secondhand, not thirdhand, not I read about it, but I know him, me. Verse 4 says, do I keep God's commandments? Not do I keep them because it's a burden, but now I want to because I know him. I know he loves me. I want to obey him. I know it's safe for me. I know it's good for me. And I wrote down there for you Psalm chapter 119, verse 105, which was cool because somebody quoted it this morning in prayer, but it says the word of God is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It's what directs me. And I've got some other verses there for you. You can read them. And then, Number two, how do I know that I know God? Verse five says, questions, is the love of God being perfected in me? Is my relationship with Christ becoming more mature? Is God changing me into his image? The more we embrace what Christ shows us, the more he will show you, by the way. And then... So in 1 Corinthians, he talks about love. And I'm just going to go there real quick. But basically, the verse there says, when I was a child, I walked as a child. I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see him face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. I shall know God just as he also already knows me. So my relationship with God will get deeper. 
And then the question is, do I walk just as he walked? I like this because in Luke chapter 6, how do I know that I know God? Do I walk as he walked? Luke chapter 6, verse 27 says this, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. Just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners and receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Do you walk as he walked? Now, that whole section of Scripture, he lived it out. So, the next question, do I love my brother? In 1 John chapter 3, he's going to go into this a little bit more in depth. But in 1 John 3, verse 10, excuse me, yeah, verse 10. In this, the children of God and the children of, de- of the devil are revealed. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. This is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Verse 13, he says, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. And whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So, I like what the book of Ecclesiastes ends with. If you know God, you will keep his commandments. And Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13 says this. This is after King Solomon's voyage to try and figure out what fulfills life and what life's about. He came to the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. This is his everything. So I guess this morning, the question becomes, do I know God? Now, for some of you, I'm asking the question because I want you to know whether or not you actually know him, whether or not you're saved. The other question is, for those of us that have known him for years, do we really know Jesus for who he really is, or do we know who we've molded him into our image? Have we molded Jesus into our image? We've tamed him. We've made him more tame so he's palpable. He's palatable. The question is, do I really know God? But the, the reality is, is that no matter how much you know about God or how much you know God, he wants to reveal to each one of us more about himself. And one of the ways he does that is through communion. So this morning we're going to take communion. And in Luke chapter 22, I want to read this before we go into it. Luke chapter 22, verse 14 says, When the hour had come, he sat down. The twelve apostles were with him keeping in mind that Judas was involved in this 12. He says, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then afterwards, after the supper, he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
which is shed for you. But behold, my betrayer is with me on the table, and truly the Son of Man goes as it is been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So I want to zoom in on three phrases. Verse 15, with fervent desire, Jesus desired to eat this Passover with the disciples, but I also want to point out he desired to eat this Passover, this meal that was all about him from the very beginning in Exodus. He desired to eat it with you and with me. So look at it as Jesus saying this to you, I have fervently desired to eat this meal with you, each one of you and me. But then he says, take this, when he talked about the cup, and divide it among yourselves, for I say to you, I say to you, he's not going to take it again until the wedding feast of the Lamb. So this is all to point us towards where we're going to end up in heaven, eating at the Lamb's feast, the, the bride feast, the celebration of our consummation of our marriage to, the, to Christ. And so we have this hope we look forward to. And then he says, this is my body, which is given for you. Each one of us as individuals, Christ gave his body for you. So as we take this, we are taking it between him and me. Between you and him. But we also are partakers together. And the invitation is, God wants us to invite others to experience the same kind of love, the same kind of forgiveness, the same kind of fellowship of knowing God and being known by Him. So, Father, we enter into this time of communion. We thank you that everything that it cost you so that we could be partakers in this new covenant, you take water and you turn it into wine. You take water in the Old Testament and the law, you turn water to blood, you judge the nation of Egypt. But in the New Testament, you take the water, the, the water that's a picture of your Holy Spirit, you pour it into us and you turn it into wine, which is a, a picture of joy and gladness. And you'll let us take in as much as we want. So Father, I pray that during this time that you would break through our hard hearts, anything that we have considered ourselves to be good enough on our own, would you show us those areas and highlight them to us so that we can recognize and see where we fall short and ask for your forgiveness. May we have a true fellowship meal with you as we simply remember the, the day where you instituted the Lord's Supper, your body and your blood, making it possible for us to have fellowship with you. You partook in this before Jesus, you suffered, and you will partake in it again when all the fullness has come. But until then, Lord, we need to remember this constantly, that without your sacrifice, nothing else is possible. So, Lord, we thank you for this time. We pray you'd bless it. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to, we're going to, play a song, and you have the opportunity to come up and gather the elements.